Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. A group of international attorneys, Dr. Reinar Fielmish among them, have been holding a grand jury hearing to investigate the coronavirus crisis, presenting experts and witnesses examining the crimes and putative culprits involved in what Dr. Fielmish describes as, quote, a PCR test pandemic fueled by a psychological operation designed to create a constant state of panic among the world's population, unquote. This Whistleblower Newsroom Hour presents experts from this historic hearing, beginning with attorney Fulmish, outlining the crimes and naming putative culprits. He is followed by Alex Thompson, a veteran of the British equivalent of the U.S.'s National Security Agency, with expertise, as Thompson puts it, unquote, how the Anglo-American intelligence and military establishment regards its state of dominance and knowledge of all matters that can affect health on a mass scale and the potential for weaponization of such agents." Unquote. Thompson's testimony places the COVID crisis in specific historical context. He describes London as the world's power center, from which a handful of elite families have been controlling much of the world for more than a century, with an eye towards eventually consolidating the entire planet's population, which they refer to as livestock, under their rule. Wars, endless psychological operations, and crises, including the coronavirus pandemic, are some of the tools they are using to achieve this one-world government goal. Now, first up, Dr. Reinar Fulmish. My name is Reinar Fulmich, and it is my pleasure to serve as one member of a group of distinguished international attorneys and lawyers who have been collaborating on this very important case for many months now. This case, involving the most heinous crimes against humanity committed under the guise of a corona pandemic on a global scale, looks complicated only at first glance. But when you put together all those pieces, all those little pieces of the puzzle, as we will do this for you with the help of many renowned experts and other witnesses during this proceeding, you will see four sets of facts. One, there is no corona pandemic, but only a PCR test pandemic, fueled by an elaborate psychological operation designed to create a constant state of panic among the world's population. This agenda has been long planned. It's ultimately unsuccessful. Precursor was the swine flu some 12 years ago. And it was cooked up by a group of super rich, psychopathic and sociopathic people who hate and fear people at the same time, have no empathy, and are driven by the desire to gain full control over all of us, the people of the world. They are using our governments and the mainstream media, both of which they literally own, to convey their panic propaganda 24-7. Two, the virus itself can be treated safely and effectively with vitamin C, D, zinc, etc., and also with off-label use of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, etc. But all these, not alternative methods of treatment, but real methods of treatment, were banned by those who are using the guise of this pandemic to push their ultimate goal, which is to get everyone to receive the, as we will show in this proceeding, not only ineffective, but highly dangerous, yes, lethal, experimental injections. Three, the same people 
who made the swine flu, which ultimately turned out to be a mild flu, into a pandemic 12 years ago by first changing the definition of what a pandemic is and then creating panic, created this corona pandemic. The swine flu was their first real attempt at creating a pandemic. And just as one of its purposes then was to divert our attention from the blatantly fraudulent activities of their financial industry, more aptly to be called a financial mafia, which had become visible through the Lehman crisis, this is also one of their major purposes of this corona pandemic now. Had we taken a closer look then during the Lehman crisis, instead of blindly believing our governments, uh, government's promises that the perpetrators of those financial crimes will be held, held liable, we would have seen th uh, then that they had been looting and plundering our public coffers for decades. And we would have seen that our governments are not our governments anymore. Rather, they have been taken over by the other side through their main platform, the World Economic Forum, which had started to create their own global leaders through their Young Global Leaders Program as early as 1992 two of the first graduates being Angela Merkel and Bill Gates. And we would have understood already then what we will show you now through this proceeding. These financial crimes went unchallenged by our politicians because they're aiding and abetting those who commit them and profiting from these crimes. Four, ultimately, however, we will show to you, the jury, that the other side's main purpose is to gain full and complete control over all of us. This involves the finalization of their looting and plundering by deliberately destroying our small and medium-sized businesses, retail businesses, hotel and restaurants, so that platforms such as Amazon can take over. And this involves population control, which in their view requires both a massive reduction of the population and manipulating the DNA of the remaining population with the help, for example, of mRNA experimental injections. But it also requires, in their view, the deliberate destruction of democracy, of the rule of law, and of our constitutions through chaos, so that ultimately we will agree to losing our national and cultural identities and instead will accept a one-world government under the UN, which is now under the full control of them and their World Economic Forum, a digital passport through which each and every move is monitored and controlled, and one digital currency, which we will only be able to receive from one World Bank, theirs, of course. At the conclusion of the case, and after you have heard all the evidence, we are confident that you will recommend indictments against all six putative figurehead defendants, Christian Drosten of Germany, Anthony Fauci, the United States, Tedros of the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, BlackRock, and Pfizer. Ladies and gentlemen, this case is about a long-planned agenda of a group of ultra-rich people and their financial mafia based in the city of London and on Wall Street to use a pseudo-pandemic as a guise behind which, while our attention is on the pandemic, they want to complete their decades-long efforts to gain full and complete control over all of us. There are numerous platforms on which this group has been meeting and discussing this agenda, but the most important one is that of the World Economic Forum, which was invented in 1971 by a then 33-year-old Klaus Schwab. 
Its members are a thousand global corporations with at least five billion US dollars in annual sales, politicians, media representatives, scientists, and other so-called high-profile personality. They meet once a year in Davos, but there are other such meetings, for example, in China. And since 1992, they have created and presented to us their own group of political leaders for the world. Among the first graduates, as I mentioned before, are Angela Merkel and Bill Gates in 1992. Others are Sebastian Kurz, up until recently Chancellor of Austria, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, François Macron, President of France, and many, many more. This group which is now called the Davos clique, is openly, the publication The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab is one of the most important sources for this information, promoting the shifting of the world's assets to this group of super-rich people so that in 2030, ordinary people will own nothing and be happy, as it explicitly states there, under their one-world government with a digital currency given to us by their one-world bank, and they're also openly promoting in close cooperation with people like the putative defendant Bill Gates, the Rockefellers and others, the drastic reduction of the world's population and the manipulation of the remaining population's DNA all the way into transhumanism. Their most important goal is, however, the controlled by them, of course, implosion of the completely looted financial system and simultaneous introduction of a digital currency issued by One World Bank controlled by them, and just as important, the introduction of a world government under the UN which has come under their full control in 2019. For this purpose, they have made concrete plans for this corona pandemic since at least the spring of 2001. Operation Dark Winter, followed by another such rehearsal, the lockstep exercise by the Rockefeller Foundation in 2010, and finally, Event 201 in October of 2019 in New York, sponsored by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Economic Forum, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is the second day of the grand jury investigation this is a model proceeding which will take a very close look into the entire corona pandemic. We will start today with a closer look at the uh, historical and at the geopolitical background. So let us start with our first expert, and that is Alex Thompson. I am Alex Thompson, and for eight years I was an officer of Britain's Signal Intelligence Agency, GCHQ, the partner agency to NSA. And there I was a desk officer for the former Soviet Union and a transcriber out of languages, including Russian and German, of intercepted material. And in the latter half of that period, I was also a member of GCHQ's cross-disciplinary team for chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats, CBRN in which capacity I came to know something about how the Anglo-American intelligence and military establishment regards its state of dominance in knowledge uh, in all matters that can affect health on a mass scale and the potential for weaponization of such agents. Uh, but you've asked me to give uh, something like a 20-minute uh, summary 
of the geopolitical situation as it was in the world in the crucial period leading up to the post-Second World War period, because most of the testimonies this evening, and I understand in subsequent uh, sessions of the grand jury, will concentrate much on the post-1945 world and that really being the uh, time when a lot of plans for uh, unification of world government began in anger, including the health issues that you are concerned with. And my contention is that the dominant power in the world, namely the city of London, the financial heart of the British Empire, uh, readied itself for that situation from roughly 1870 and that the modern world, the monopolization, the cartelization of the world begins in anger at that time. Uh, everything that we do, and by we I mean UK Column News, uh, I am also joined this evening by Brian Gerrish, the joint editor who will testify later, Everything that we do in investigating the corruption emanating from uh, British Crown monopolies and City of London money uh, does seem to point back to this period from around 1870, in which, in a nutshell, there were several revolutions by the British elite, and they all revolved around containing productivity and preventing a growth of uh, intelligence and uh, intellectual property uh, among the native peoples of the British Empire and in competitor nations. So there was a revolution in what you might call mind space, which since 2010 has been an uh, explicit term used by the British government's central department, the cabinet office a revolution in the quality of education offered to British and later other Western school children, a revolution in the theft of intellectual property by the elite, a revolution in the model of healthcare and free access to it, and at home a constitutional revolution uh, from the classic British uh, liberal democracy model, which I know that the continent of Europe and its law schools have uh, explicitly copied from Britain, to a model in which there is close control of what happens in parliaments and in agencies under the control of governments uh, using the whipped party system. This all happened, as I say, around 1870, and at home in Britain, it was largely complete by the crucial year 1947-1948, when Britain had a unique, uh, other than Canada, a unique situation of a national health service, uh, and was pushing the way towards the military unification of the European continent and the whole of NATO, and in many other ways, including planning law and citizenship, was leading the world in reinventing how it managed its population. The centre node here is the city of London. That is the square mile uh, at the very heart of what is now called Greater London. Uh, why this is important is because the City of London and the Church of England are the only institutions that have endured every constitutional revolution in the British Isles with their privileges and their vast wealth intact. The City of London is distinct from other world metropolitan areas, uh, megalopolises, in that it chose to keep itself geographically small as the urban area around it grew. The City of London still has a legal status apart from the 32 under other London boroughs and does not really form part of Greater London as, uh, as such. Its privileges were entrenched as early as Magna Carta 1215, 
its self-government has never been challenged. It has at many times in its history had power over the British crown and hence over a large slice of the earth during the British Empire, uh, notably during the civil wars of the mid-17th century uh, when the city of London continued as a financial power rivaling the crown and even in some ways abolished the crown for a decade. And after the restoration of the crowns and ultimately the English Revolution, uh, just six years after that with the Dutch Dutch King William III coming to the crown of Great Britain, the Bank of England was set up in 1694 with a £12.5 million uh, injection of cash into the crown uh, by these private shareholders, uh, which uh, we are reliably told forms the basis of all the debt which has been leveraged since to this day. And the current descendants of those shareholders and others entitled uh, to shares of the Bank of England are kept secret. Uh, the City of London also has control over the so-called Mother of Parliaments, the Westminster Parliament, notably in the form of an official of the City of London known as the Remembrancer, who sits in the House of Commons where not even the monarch is allowed to enter and records what is being said against financial interests. It's too complicated uh, to give a definition of the Crown in the British model. Uh, but what is important is that the cabinet office, uh, a, a department which was set up in the early 20th century, is the repository effectively of crown prerogatives. And so when people outside the United Kingdom think of the crown, uh, they often think excessively of the old situation with the monarch standing on the coronation oath and being responsible to the people. Uh, in practice, uh, in this period from around 1870, the constitutional revolution has ensured that financiers controlling political parties uh, actually pull the levers of crown prerogatives. Uh, behind the scenes, the model of government Britain still has, and which it has exported to the Commonwealth and the whole world, is that of an inner sanctum, the Privy Council, which actually governs in the name of the Crown. And it is only for show, as the main constitutional writers have admitted since the 1870s, only for show that Parliament and government departments are consulted as if there were a separation between executive, legislature and judiciary. At Privy Council level, this is not the case. Uh, in this crucial period about which we are speaking, the preeminent English constitutional writer, Walter Bashow, admitted this in the, 17th, in the second edition of his book, The English Constitution, written in 1873, just when the modern whipped party and behind them the think tank were coming into their own to establish the will of monopolists in the city of London. Walter Bashow wrote in one paragraph there about a distinction between the, quote, dignified parts of the government, that is, the parts that are there for show, uh, the crown, uh, in its personal sense, and the, quote, efficient parts, in the sense of the working parts of the machine. And he admits that the attractive parts do have a purpose, but that is only to attract the force of national support to the really working parts behind the scenes. Now, to simplify this as much as possible, uh, what I think is important to point out is that uh, the uh, history uh, academic at Georgetown University, Carol Quigley, that's C-A-R-R-O-L-L -L Quigley, who was the tutor of Bill Clinton, among others, uh, uh, wrote quite frankly in his book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, that there have been four industrial revolutions. Yes, that familiar language coming from the World Economic Forum uh, was being written about in the 1960s already by Quigley. And we will not understand this unless we see that the perspective which is being assumed here is that of who owns the population, first in Britain and then in the British Empire. In the first revolution, 
the ownership of land, of agricultural means, uh, provides wealth. Then there is a mechanical industrial revolution, a second revolution, then one in which financial capital dominates the world. And it's from this period, period around 1870 onwards that the smart money in the city of London realises that even that bubble is going to burst and that the really important way to own the world in future will be to own the mines and the productivity and the thoughts of those uh, in the model to make to stop them running away uh, and becoming and out producing their bosses. So the modern era of cartelization in both industry and geopolitics began around the year 1870. In the space of just a few years around that date, the world underwent a fundamental shift from a situation in which the city of London and the British Empire lacked any serious competition to a world in which several industrialised economies were able to outcompete Britain. The British Empire and its financial hub in the city of London had massively overextended themselves across Asia in the previous generation, especially with the Afghan wars and the Opium Wars in the 1840s and the Crimean War and the Indian Mutiny of the 1850s. One of the City of London's most powerful banks, HSBC, dates, in fact, from the time of the Chinese opium trade. Uh, there is quite a lot of criminality involved in the City of London's banks uh, in the outset. In Europe, the post-Napoleonic order imposed by Britain at the Congress of Vienna in 1815 had begun to crumble with both the successful and the failed socialist revolutions of 1848. Russia and Austria-Hungary were the Eastern European countries with the most powerful land armies at that time, and it was they who safeguarded Europe by restoring the crowned heads. Therefore, the obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, and this is something I saw when I attended Chatham House meetings, the, the uh, supreme, the world's supreme geopolitical think tank in many ways, which tells the Foreign Office what to do. The obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century was a new strategy, namely to ally with the arch rivals of the past, France and even the Ottoman Empire, against Britain's historic allies in Northern and Central Europe in order to prevent any future Russo-German alliance from becoming the world's dominant bloc. And a secondary strategy there was to prevent the meteoric rise of American intellectual productivity and democratization of invention, uh, and to try to capture that. As early as 1812, British troops invading Washington, D.C., notably spared the patent office because they knew that if they burnt that, they would be shooting themselves in the foot and stopping themselves from being able to continue to dominate American invention after the American Revolution. Now, in the years around 1860, under Bismarck, Garibaldi and Tsar Nikolai I, three major European nations which previously had been great only in cultural terms had suddenly become politically unified and economically modern states. And with the Großdeutschland, Kleindeutschland debate, there were serious indications that Germany might ally with Austria into a single Germany-speaking state. And it was obvious to the British elite that within a generation or two, all three of these countries, Germany, Italy and Russia, would become great powers at roughly the same level as Britain and France. The United States emerged from its civil war in 1865 and began a staggeringly rapid rise to industrial supremacy. Britain's elite correctly foresaw that by around 1900, all four of these new powers would begin to have navies as strong as France's or even as strong as Britain's, and foresaw that the land armies of these European powers would be far stronger than Britain's, so that only a previously unthinkable Franco-British alliance in the name of human rights and the spread of liberal democracy would be able to hold these powers in check. 
1880, the so-called scramble for Africa was in full swing, which allowed even territorially minor nations in Europe, such as Belgium and Portugal, to acquire substantial resources from colonization of the African interior and to become serious rivals to British industry and commerce. This was a severe embarrassment to the city of London because, for example, Portugal was Britain's oldest ally and Belgium was a state that owed its very existence to British negotiation in 1815. Serious arguments have been made by historians that the, well, the wave of assassinations in the Edwardian era, including that of the Portuguese royal family in 1908 and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, were engineered with secret City of London connivance. There was also an Asian country that became a great power in both industrial and military terms at the end of the 19th century, namely Japan, which to the world's frank astonishment beat Russia in 1905, thereby giving many colonial populations in Africa and Asia the inspiration that there was no reason why they too could not assert themselves against European rule in the way that the Latin American republics already had against Spain. The following year, 1906, was the year of the naval race, the Dreadnought Crisis, which perhaps inevitably started the countdown to the Great War, the First World War, because both the British and the German elite were now determined to achieve Weltherrschaft, world domination. Both were rightly suspicious of each other's motives. Both were technically capable of achieving world domination, both industrially and in the mind space, and both had powerful blocks of allies for the first time. In a nutshell, the change brought about by the existential crisis of the mid to late 19th century was that the City of London's trading model, as described by Quigley, the successive waves of monopolies, uh, this model came to emphasise the importance of controlling not just military force or physical assets anymore, but the minds of people, now known as human resources, in the British Empire and further afield. And this is why science fiction starts speaking about ownership of man's genetic makeup from this time in order that the City of London could sell goods and increasingly services to the rest of the world, which would never catch up in the mind space. It is the consistent finding of UK Column and of allied researchers and commentators that the City of London and Britain's very wealthy soft power institutions, the ones that Tony Blair even this month has once again told us we must keep and become well-beating using, such as the British Council, the BBC, British Academia and the Church of England, that these institutions continue to regard that battle for the mind as their top priority for world domination and that they regard health as a subsector of that battle. We are also fully convinced from repeated findings that the British elite regard themselves with some justification as still the world's leading power in mind space. In other words, the City of London gets other nations to do its donkey work and its dirty work for it, and it does this above all by pulling off the trick of making its own population, Britain and the Commonwealth, and the elites of other nations assume its perspective and its narrative, rather than their own perspectives and narratives. This is the concentration that I had in my British elite education, and this is the concentration that the British intelligence agencies have had through both world wars and the Cold War. It is not a formal strategy that is taught in boarding schools or universities or officer training or intelligence agencies, but it is very much the credo of the leading so-called bloodlines of elite families that run the City of London. And it is the modus operandi of the Anglo-American tax-exempt foundations and of the think tanks, such as Chatham House above all, which push the agendas of those bloodlines upon the Western governments. Uh, a key figure from the year 1870 is that 
uh, of John Ruskin, uh, a seemingly an innocuous figure because he was the first professor of art at Oxford, uh, but he brought the doctrine that the uh, British elite really had a duty to export its own worldview to the rest of the world in very broad brush terms. And his key student whom he inspired was Cecil Rhodes, who of course became fabulously wealthy in Southern Africa. Cecil Rhodes, and this is all documented by very many historians, uh, wrote secret diaries and formed secret societies. In 1891, after 16 years planning, his main secret society was formed. The Rhodes Scholarships are part of that society. Um, Oxford members of the Rhodes Network were the likes of Lord Toynbee and Lord Milner, well-known geostrategists. In Cambridge, there was the future Foreign Secretary Lord Grey and Lord Esher. In London, there was the leading journalist of the time, W.T. Stead. And initiates and members of the executive committee of Cecil Rhodes were the above-named men, plus Lord Rothschild. After Rhodes' death in 1902, other leading English bloodlines that repeatedly plague a city of London history, such as the Astors, came into the same circle. The outer circle uh, to achieve the will of Cecil Rhodes, this uh, seemingly benign vision of Britain forcing the world to accept its liberal democracy and accept its way of, of viewing the world, the outer circle became known as the round table groups, still functioning in the United States and seven other countries set up from 1909 onwards. Uh, this group regarded the uh, success of the Canadian Federation 1867 as its leading case study. You'll be hearing more about that from Matt Ayrett later. Canada was effectively politically unified and later the other white colonies, the white dominions, in order to prevent there being a spread of different views, uh, different uh, English-speaking democracies in the world. They must instead all be traced back to the city of London's control. And this is very contemporary, too, because uh, among the many Rhodes scholars uh, of, uh, that dominate world politics and push the world towards globalism are the aforementioned Bill Clinton and, from the World Economic Forum, uh, the New Zealand lady, uh, Professor Nairi Woods, who this year became very well known for her saying at the WEF that the elite can do beautiful things if they come together and if the people of the world simply accept that they are in the lead. Rhodes wrote in one of his secret diaries, quote, why should we not form a secret society with but one object, meaning with only one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery, that means recovery for Britain, of the United States and for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. He also wrote, let us form the same kind of society, a church for the extension of the British Empire. This is mind space, my comment. Rhodes continues, <clears throat> a society which should have its members in every part of the British Empire working with one object and one idea. We should have its members placed at our universities and our schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands. Just one perhaps in every thousand would have the mind and feelings for such an object. This is what Rhodes scholarships are for. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disregardful of the petty details of life, and if found to be such, in other words, a psychological test, then he should be elected and bound by oath, that is sworn to secrecy, to serve for the rest of his life in his country. He should then be supported, if without means, by the society and sent to that part of the empire where it is felt he was needed. And in this vision, of course, the United States is part of the empire. In another of his wills, Rhodes described his intent in more detail, quote, 
to and for the establishment, promotion and development of a secret society, the true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world. The colonization by British subjects of all lands where the means of livelihood are attainable by energy, labor and enterprise, and especially the occupation by British settlers of the entire continent of Africa, the Holy Land, the Valley of the Euphrates, modern Iraq, the islands of Cyprus and Candia, that is Crete, the whole of South America, the islands of the Pacific not heretofore possessed by Great Britain, the whole of the Malay archipelago, those aboard of China and Japan, meaning offshore of China and Japan, and the ultimate recovery of the United States of America as an integral part of the British Empire. This vision did not remain the ravings of a particularly wealthy Englishman, uh, but they nativized themselves in the United States, in the so-called Eastern Establishment, the Eastern Seaboard, as the United States became the world's dominant power. The key testimony on this is that of Norman Dodd, the ODD, given shortly before his death in 1982 to G. Edward Griffin, easily found online uh, as Norman Dodd on the tax-exempt foundations. The story you are about to hear represents a missing piece in the puzzle of modern history. Without this knowledge, many contemporary events are simply beyond understanding. You are about to hear a man tell you that the major tax-exempt foundations of this land, since at least 1945, have been operating to promote a hidden agenda. And that agenda has nothing to do with the surface appearance of charity, good works, or philanthropy. This man will tell you that the real objectives include the creation of a worldwide collective estate, including the Soviet Union, which is to be ruled from behind the scenes by those same interests which now control the tax-exempt foundations. The man who tells this story is none other than Mr. Norman Dodd who in 1954 was the staff director of the Congressional Special Committee to Investigate Tax-Exempt Foundations, sometimes referred to as the Reese Committee, in recognition of its chairman, Congressman Carol Reese. The interview you are about to see was conducted by me in 1982. Can you tell us what the Reese Committee was attempting to do? It was operating and, and carrying out instructions embodied in a resolution passed by the House of Representatives, which was to investigate the activities of foundations as to whether or not these activities could justifiably be labeled un-American. And we defined that in our way as being a determination to effect changes in the country by unconstitutional means. We have plenty of constitutional procedures, assuming that we wish to effect a change in the form of government or that sort of thing. And therefore, any effort in that direction which did not avail itself of the procedures which were authorized by the Constitution could be justifiably called un-American. What we had uncovered was the determination of these large endowed foundations through their trustees to actually get control over the content of American education. There's quite a bit of publicity given to your conversation with uh, Rowan Gaither. Uh, would you please tell us who he was and what was that conversation you had with him? Rowan Gaither was at that time president of the Ford Foundation. Mr. Gaither said, Mr. Dodd, 
we've asked you to come up here this today because we thought that possibly off the record you would tell us why the Congress is interested in the activities of foundations such as ourselves. And um, before I could think of how I would reply to that statement, Mr. Gaither then went on voluntarily and stated, he said, Mr. Dodd, all of us that have a hand in the making of policies here have had experience either with the OSS during the war or the European Economic Administration after the war. We've had experience operating under directives and these directives emanate and did emanate from the White House. Now we still operate under just such directives. Would you like to know what the substance of these directives is? And I said, yes, Mr. Gaither, I'd like very much to know. <coughs> Whereupon he made this statement to me, namely, Mr. Dodd, we are here operate on similar, in response to similar directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power so to alter life in the United States that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. My response to Mr. Gaither then was, well, Mr. Gaither, I can now answer your first question. You forced the Congress of the United States to spend $150,000 to find out what you've just told me. So why don't you <clears throat> I said, of course, legally, you're entitled to um, make grants for, the, for this purpose. But I don't think you're entitled to withhold that information from the people of the country to whom you're indebted for your tax exemption. So why don't you tell the people of the country that's what you've told me? And his answer was, we would not think of doing any such thing. Mr. Dodd, you have spoken before about uh, some interesting things that were discovered by Catherine Casey at the Carnegie Endowment. This experience that you have just referred to came about in response to a letter which I had written to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, asking certain questions and gathering certain information. And on the, on the arrival of that letter, Dr. Johnson, who was then president of the Carnegie Endowment, telephoned me and said, did I ever come up to New York? And I said, yes, I did, more or less each weekend. And he said, well, when you're next here, will you drop in and see us? which I did. Dr. Johnson said, if you can spare a member of your staff for two weeks and send that member up to New York, we will give to that member the minute books of this foundation since its inception. I went back to Washington and I selected the member of my staff who was on my staff having been a practicing attorney in Washington, but she was on my staff to see to it that I didn't break any congressional procedures or rules. In addition to which, she was unsympathetic to the purpose of the investigation.
Uh, she was um, level-headed and a very reasonably brilliant, capable lady. And her attitude of, toward the investigation was, what could possibly be wrong with foundations? They do so much good. Well, in the face of that sincere conviction of Catherine's, I went out of my way not to prejudice her in any way. But I did explain to her that she couldn't possibly cover 50 years of handwritten minutes in two weeks. So she would have to do what we call spot reading. And I blocked out certain periods of time to concentrate on. She came back at the end of two weeks with the following in the way of on, on dictaphone belts. We are now at the year 1908, which was the year that the Carnegie began operations. And in that year, the trustees, meeting for the first time, raised a specific question, which they discussed throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people. And they conclude that no, no, no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then in 1909, they raised the second question and discuss it, namely, how do we involve the United States in a war? Well, I doubt at that time if there was any subject more removed from the thinking of most of the people of this country than its involvement in a war. They answer that question as follows. We must control the State Department. And, the, and then that very naturally raises the question of how do we do that? And... Um, they answer it by saying, we must take over and control the diplomatic machinery of this country. And finally, they resolve to aim at that as an objective. Then time passes, and we are eventually in a war, which would have been World War I. And at that time, they record on their minutes a shocking report in which they dispatched to President Wilson a telegram cautioning him to see that the war does not end too quickly. And finally, the war is over. At that time, their interest shifts over to preventing what they call a reversion of life in the United States to what it was prior to 1914 when World War I broke out. And they arrive at that point, they come to the conclusion that to prevent a reversion, we must control education in the United States. And they realize that that's a pretty big task. So it's to them, it is too big for them alone, so they approach the Rockefeller Foundation, 
with the suggestion that that portion of education which is could be considered domestic be handled by the Rockefeller Foundation and that portion which is international should be handled by the endowment. And they then decide that the key to the success of these two operations lay in an alteration of the teaching of American history. So they approach four of the then most prominent teachers of American history in the country, people like Charles and Mary Byrd, and their suggestion to them is, will they alter the manner in which they present this subject and they get turned down flat. So they then decide that it is necessary for them to do, as they say, build our own stable of historians. Then they approach the Guggenheim Foundation, which specializes in fellowships, and say, when we find young men in the process of studying for doctorates in the field of American history, and we feel that they are uh, the right caliber, will you grant them fellowships on our say-so? And the answer is yes. So under that condition, eventually they assemble 20, and they take this 20 potential teachers of American history to London, and there they're briefed into what is expected of them when, as and if, they secure appointments in keeping with the doctorates they will have earned. That group of 20 historians ultimately becomes the nucleus of the American Historical Association. And then toward the end of the 1920s, the endowment grants to the American Historical Association $400,000 for a study of our history in a manner which points to what can this country look forward to in the future. And that culminates in a seven-volume study, the last volume of which is, of course, in essence, a summary of the contents of the other six. And the essence of the last volume is the future of this country belongs to collectivism administered with characteristic American efficiency. Both the Republican National Committee and the, and the White House were resorted to to stop me from continuing this investigation. They had to have something in the way of a, of a rationalization of their decision to do everything they could to stop, to stop the completion of this investigation in the direction that it was moving which would have been an exposure of this Carnegie Endowment story and the Ford Foundation and the Guggenheim and the Rockefeller Foundation, all working in harmony toward the control of education in the United States. How do you see that the purpose and direction of the major foundations has changed over the years to the present? What is it today? Whole 100% behind uh, meeting the cost of education such as such as it is uh, presented through the schools and colleges of the United States on the subject of our history has proven our our original ideas to be no longer practical. The future belongs to a collectivistic concept. Why do the foundations 
generously support uh, communist causes in the United States? Well, because to them, what communism represents a, a means of developing what we call a monopoly. That is, the organization will say of, of large-scale industry into an, an administrable unit. Do they think that they will be one of they the administrators? Will be, they will be the beneficiaries of it, yes. I think that is enough in itself to establish the key insight in people's minds that it is not enough to be by far the world's greatest military and economic powers. The United States has been arguably since before the First World War, certainly after it. If your mind space is still controlled by this uh, argument that the Anglo-Saxon liberal democratic model is the only game in town, if it's still controlled by the unexamined assumption that everyone at the top of that model is paid up to uh, liberty, uh, then you are still going to find that a club with self-interest is going to run the world. And even in areas such as healthcare, which Britain, uh, first of the first country in the world, socialised in 1948, you're going to find that people uh, wrongly and blithely assume that their best interests are, at, uh, are kept at heart. Uh, in perhaps two minutes, I will make the other point that I wish to make, uh, which is regarding the City of London and its offshoot in Manhattan, in Wall Street, uh, funding both sides of both world wars. Now, this is not, again, an original claim to me. Uh, serious academics such as Anthony Sutton, who was at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University in California, have written whole books about this, entitled Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Uh, this is well known to those who bother to find out about these things. Um, the, um, there was a whole trail of documents which was uh, recovered by Anthony Sutton. It cost him his tenure at Stanford. Uh, he put this all uh, in his books. Uh, and what he found was that, uh, in a nutshell, both the Soviet Union and the uh, Third Reich were brought into being for the interests of the City of London and more particularly its Wall Street and IBM had a uh, monopoly subsidiary in Germany called the uh, the Hollerit uh, company. Hollerit was the name of the German owner. You can see here uh, that uh, Hollerit, the nominal German owner of this IBM subsidiary, is offering the Third Reich Übersicht or oversight using punch cards, uh, an American te technology uh, licensed to the Third Reich. Uh, at the bottom, you can read Übersicht mit Hollerit. Lochkarten, uh, total uh, information awareness using Hollerit punch cards, and the company name at the bottom is Deutsche Hollerit Maschinen Maschinengesellschaft, or uh, Dehormag, uh, which was in Berlin Lichterfelder. Um, the second slide which I have is just one example of the total reach of British intelligence in areas which it's not constitutionally able uh, or, or, or permitted to, to have, which is that you can see a Christmas tree symbol here indicating that uh, MI5, even before the Second World War, was vetting who got onto the uh, airwaves of the BBC, who got promoted and who got transferred. This was all done uh, checking with MI5 uh, in very brief, uh, brief terms. British intelligence, uh, okay, it nominally is there for the nation, but it was set up uh, by the uh, bloodlines of which I speak to further their private aims. That's certainly how they regard uh, the running of British intelligence. 
The third of my four slides shows how this breaks surface in 2010, where the British Cabinet Office is, uh, with a, together with a think tank, the Institute of Government, is openly speaking about its control of the world's thinking and the thinking of the British people. Uh, they're labelling parts of the brain under the label of mind space. And on the right-hand side, you have, uh, I can see the, uh, you've put the key text from pages 66 and 67 of this 2010 document. It says, even if people agree with the behaviour goal, this is about nudging to get people to behave uh, as was wished by bloodlines rather than uh, to uh, mandate their governments to act on their behalf. Even if people agree with the behaviour goal, they may object to the means of accomplishing it. The different mind space effects will attract different levels of controversy. There are several factors that determine controversy. In other words, they are foreseeing that they will be told this is a reversal of the aims of government, <clears throat> including in healthcare, of course. Uh, they go on, as noted, mind space effects depend at least partly on the automatic system. This means that citizens may not fully realise that their behaviour is being changed, or at least how it is being changed. Clearly, this opens government up to charges of manipulation. People tend to think that attempts to change their behaviour will be effective if they are simply provided information in an above-board way. People have a strong dislike of being tricked. This dislike has a psychological grounding, but fundamentally it is an issue of trust in government. A lack of conscious control also has implications for consent and freedom of choice. First, it creates a greater need for citizens to approve the use of the behaviour change, perhaps using new forms of democratic engagement. You see that in this model, democracy is the highest good that's sold, but the levers of manipulating democracy are in the hands of the cartel. Second, if the effect operates automatically, it may offer little opportunity for citizens to opt out or choose otherwise. The concept of choice architecture is less use here. Any action that may reduce the right to be wrong, the right to refuse treatment, for example, will be very controversial. Of course, some traditional attempts to change behaviour are not explicit, and these have attracted controversy. But they rarely attract the charge of manipulation, because they are based on conscious actions to supply and register information, rather than relying on unconscious reactions. Uh, I think that establishes the point well enough in principle that uh, we are trained in the modern world, dominated by the City of London and its soft power institutions, to think uh, that we are in control of our destiny because liberal democracy is held up as the paragon on the correct argument often that all other systems are more tyrannical and less desirable. But the whole strength of the City of London's model is that it can even operate uh, at arm's length through other countries, such as the United States and Germany, as uh, demonstrated here, uh, to persuade people that what they wanted before is not really what they want now. And it's the, the filling of the mind space, uh, which is, the, I think, the most powerful weapon uh, that's uh, that's uh, on, on that's that's available there. I trust that I have given people a small taster of the long track record of solid historical research that there has been by people well familiar with the British establishment uh, in establishing this. That the that the British establishment hasn't been fighting fair since about 1870, and that most of the revolutions it wished to bring about, uh, control of democracy through party whipping. Uh, control of healthcare uh, through compulsory uh, states provided healthcare in the British and Canadian model were all in place by the post-war period. If you've had my background, 
you learn at boarding school, let alone at university. So rugby and Cambridge in my case. And by the time you get into the civil service, uh, there is a lot of eye rolling if you ever suggest that the people of Britain or any other country in the Commonwealth have self-determination. No, the City of London is understood to own the population, body, mind and soul. There are countries on the European continent which, certainly since 1949, Germany is one of them, the Federal Republic, of course. Uh, Belgium is another, which, as I said in my testimony, uh, was set up by British uh, insistence in 1815. I translate... Uh, at quite a high level, government communications from supposedly the uh, national health agencies of these countries to their citizens. I translate them into English for expatriates in those countries. And the Belgian and German, to name these two examples, governments are explicitly following a City of London view here. They write to the population in terms of health management, uh, telling them that the way that they exist is not good enough. Their bodies, their minds, their genetics, their intelligence have not been optimised. And therefore, this livestock, this population is not competing as it should in the world. So ultimately, what we're seeing is a very powerful, financially powerful and therefore powerful um, institution, City of London, which bridges the Atlantic because as its fifth column, as some people claim, Uh, they have Wall Street. Those two powers united used to be or still are the, mo the, the center of power in this world. Yes, I mean, you, could, you can take many twists and turns, especially in the mid-20th century period, but what you have said is a useful diagnostic summary. You mentioned that it is just a few families who really run the city of London. You mentioned the names of Rothschild and Rhodes and Astor. Uh, is it true that it's just a few families who are trying to dominate the world through the city of London? Yes. Um, I have never found better material than that of a writing duo, which is Dutch-German-American. The Dutchman is Robin de Ruyter, R-U-I-T-E-R. His American-German co-author is Fritz Springmeier from South Carolina. They have the rather shocking book titled Bloodlines of the Illuminati, but their work is solid, and they consistently show that uh, the city of London, Manhattan, the European continent, are very much dominated by a small number of families. Often 13 is given as the top level of these families. Obviously, there are levels below that. The French, for example, often spoke about les 200 familles, the 200 bloodlines that run the deep state. Uh, but the senior ones terrorize the junior ones in this model. The highest level you can get up to is a level at which Central European Germanic bloodlines uh, have an uneasy truce with British Isles bloodlines. Uh, most of whom are now based in the United States. Uh, that is the, 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 the largest model. And all the geopolitical frustrations of the 20th century ultimately are to do with one or other wing trying to gain ascendancy, should we uh, go with the city or overturn the city, and have to do with the frustration of uh, emerging superpowers, notably the Russians, trying to play on level terms with, the, with that bloodline cartel and failing. You use the term livestock. Is that really the view that these people have of the rest of the world? It is explicitly the view that certainly in the 1990s, when I was at a senior British boarding school, this, this term was used uh, explicitly to describe by the grandsons of City of London seniors to describe the British population uh, who, who, went, who walked under their own windows on the way to... Um, 
uh, or as we went to lessons, they were going about their business in town. Uh, the, the terms that were used for them revolved around the idea that they were cattle and did not deserve a place in the world other than under the direction of the British elite. 